Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanize podcast. I am so glad you are with me today. Something that is fundamental to living a fulfilled life that is rooted in joy and the full expression of our highest self, unhindered by pain and regret, is our capacity to forgive others and also ourselves. When we are filled with loathing, blame, shame, and condemnation, whether focused outward or inward, it cuts us off from living a life of freedom, connectedness, and abundance. However, in many cases, being able to forgive is not something you can simply decide on and then switch on. True forgiveness is complex. It cannot be forced, but it can be nurtured and grown. Our guest today is the world's leading expert on the scientific study of forgiveness. Dr. Everett Worthington knows forgiveness. He is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University and has done clinical studies on forgiveness for over 40 years. And he has lived it, forgiving the man who murdered his mother. Dr. Worthington has published over 400 scholarly articles and 37 books on what forgiveness is and how we can become forgiving people, what the substantial cost of unforgiveness is, and what the profound positive effects of forgiveness are. In 2001, Dr. Worthington developed the REACH Forgiveness Practice, a method that has been tested in more than 20 controlled scientific studies and which has helped thousands of people around the world, including himself, reap the mental and physical benefits of forgiveness and heal from emotional trauma. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Professor Worthington, it is such a pleasure to connect with you, and I'm very grateful you're spending some time with us today on the Superhumanized podcast. Thank you. Glad to be with you. There is a beautiful quote. I think that's attributed to Mark Twain, and it says, forgiveness is the fragrance the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness I think authorities would differ in the way that they define forgiveness, but I look at forgiveness as being two separate experiences. One is to make a decision about how you intend to act toward a person who's wronged you or hurt you. I'm not going to get even with them. I'm going to treat them as a valued and valuable person. We call this decisional forgiveness or making a decision to forgive. Other experience is comes out of the idea that I could make a decision to treat this person wonderfully and do it for the rest of my life. And yet I could still feel emotionally angry and hurt and resentful every time I think about it. So the 
there must be a second process, and we call that emotional forgiveness. So emotional forgiveness is placing the negative, unforgiving emotions like bitterness and resentment and anger with positive, other-oriented emotions like empathy or sympathy or compassion or love for the person. And of course, between these, first of all, for many of us, it may be hard to even arrive to the time where you decide, okay, I decide to forgive. And then between the decisional forgiveness and the emotional forgiveness, there's also quite a few steps. And I know you have dedicated a large part of your life to research forgiveness and also to develop a steps. You have actually developed a scientifically validated system called REACH. And I'd like to delve into that very shortly. What I'd like to know first is you're a leader in the field of forgiveness research. I would love to know what actually is the current state in the science of forgiveness. In uh, 2020, myself and Nathaniel Wade edited a book called Handbook of Forgiveness. And we asked 30 some odd research teams to summarize the research in the area. It turns out there is like well over 2,500 published articles on forgiveness at this point. So it's a complex field because there are many articles in each of the different areas about personality, social psychology, developmental psychology, all of those areas that look at different aspects of forgiveness have many studies within them. So I think it's a very well-developed science of forgiveness and a clinical science of forgiveness also in that there are quite a number of interventions to help people forgive who want to forgive. And that reach forgiveness model that I developed is one of the two most used of those. And you just said something that's crucial, people that want to forgive. There's, of course, a, a big emphasis on that forgiving is important. And there can be a lot of influence and well-meaning voices from the outside when something has happened to someone and where it would be considered good to actually forgive. But it's not like this can just happen in the moments, okay, I forgive, right? I personally have experienced, I had the, I call it an, a moment of grace in my life where in a healing environment, in a therapeutic session, I actually was able to experience forgiveness. It was something I thought about for a long time. I had done a lot of self-work. I grasped intellectually what had happened and that I wanted to forgive. However, that was not enough to make it happen. But in with that, in this therapeutic session where I was able to reframe some of the things and connect parts of my conscious with my subconscious, I have no better way of explaining it, but it was the sense of a flower growing and opening up in the center of my being, even physically, my body, I could feel it. And after that experience, there was no more grudge, no more anger, no more resentment towards the person and any of the events. So I feel very blessed to have experienced that because I now know what true forgiveness is. However, for people who have not experienced this, I would like for you to explain to us, first of all, 
Why does it matter? Why is it so important to forgive? And then I would like to delve into your reach system and the steps that you've developed. I think it's important to forgive for a lot of different reasons. There are, I think, four classes of benefits for forgiving. And those are forgiving is associated with better mental health, with better relationships, with better physical health and better improvement in spirituality. So there is a lot of research that has accumulated to support each of those. Uh, for example, in terms of forgiveness and physical health, we edited a book in 2015. So this is seven more years of research since then, but we edited this book and there were 20 different research teams that reported on research in 20 different areas of physical health that could be affected by forgiveness, affected positively. Mental health, there's probably even more research than, than we accumulated on physical health, just because the mental health benefits of reduced depression, reduced anxiety, increases in hope, those happen more quickly. Physical health, it takes a while for those to be sensed. So people identify the mental health benefits more quickly. But relationships, of course, are affected by forgiveness also. And I mentioned that there are two different types of forgiveness. So the emotional forgiveness is what influences physical health and mental health the most. So if I'm able to get over my negative grudge-holding emotions and anger and resentment, that is going to show up in the, my body in terms of my stress reactions and my heart and the way that my heart rate variability is influenced. Decisional forgiveness, where I decide to treat this person who hurt me differently, is actually going to show up more in relationship benefits. Because if I decide to treat this friend or work colleague or partner differently, well, they're going to see that and that's going to improve our relationship. So you see that making a distinction between those two types of forgiveness, they actually have different effects and different benefits that come from each one of those. And I would like to elaborate a little bit more. When I researched your work and your life's mission, I was really fascinated by the things that can be physically influenced by forgiveness or unforgiveness. And when we're in the state of unforgiveness, which is a stress response, it elevates our cortisol levels and it can have really negative effects on all kinds of our bodily systems, our gastrointestinal systems, our reproductive, our cardiovascular, and also our central nervous systems. We can be in a constant state of fight or flight if we carry real heavy burden of unforgiveness. And of course, also what you mentioned, the mental health that can be so affected by thought loops and ruminating and always having present very hard and sad and negative memories. So the for ourselves, the impact that it can have when we practice forgiveness is tremendous, as well as it can be on relationships like you just mentioned. 
So for many people, it's really hard to even envision how can I even get there? How can I get from this state of absolute misery and resentment and anger, all the different emotions that mix in there? How can I get to maybe first the decisional forgiveness and then also the emotional forgiveness? Can you give us an overview of your REACH system, please, Professor Worthington? Sure. So I think one thing that helps people is to realize that they actually don't have to make a decision first and then have emotions flow from that. Yes, that can happen. But just as often, people experience an emotional change, and then they make a decision afterwards. And in fact, our reach forgiveness model actually does that. It, it realizes that when you start, when a person is, says, I would like to forgive, but I haven't been able to, and they enter into a group where they start working with a do-it-yourself manual that we've created, it's hard to just start out and make a decision. And so... What we help them with is to do different exercises that help them move through five steps to reach emotional forgiveness. So REACH, R-E-A-C-H, is an acronym which helps people remember those five steps. So R is recall the hurt, but not just rehearsing how what a jerk the person is for having hurt me, but how, how terrible I've been damaged. Yes, we have been damaged, but we are not going to get any different result unless we recall the hurt in a different way. And so the second step is to empathize with the person who hurt me. So I try to get into their framework. And one of the exercises that's the most helpful, one of the most helpful is to do a kind of an empty chair dialogue. So I'm sure most people have seen these things where you imagine the person who's harmed you is sitting in an empty chair across from you and you pour your heart out to them and you tell them all about the hurt. And then you get up and you get in their chair and you talk back and try to get into the perspective of what were they thinking? What were they feeling? What were the pressures in their life that may have contributed to their doing whatever was hurtful? And then you get back in your chair and you respond back and you do this again and again. Of course, sitting in somebody else's chair could be thought of as a facile model for empathy. So you are imagining their experience. So recall the hurt, empathize with the person who has harmed you, and then give an a altruistic gift, an altruistic gift, unselfish gift, a one that's not deserved. Certainly, if somebody hurts me, they don't deserve forgiveness. And so if I give them a gift of forgiveness, then that is an act of unselfish altruism. C is commit to the forgiveness that we have experienced, the emotional forgiveness that we've experienced. And we can do that by just writing a note to ourselves or telling someone or all kinds of ways to commit. And we do that so that we can H, hold on to that forgiveness when we doubt. So recall the hurt, empathize, altruistic gift of forgiveness, commit to the forgiveness experience and hold on when you doubt. If a person has worked through this and has experienced some emotional forgiveness, 
at that point, we can invite them to whether they'd like to make a decision to treat this person differently. And almost everyone is willing to make such a decision at that point. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing this, Professor Worthington. And for those in our audience who may not be familiar with your life's work and your background story, you are not only someone who understands the practice and concept of forgiveness via the many decades of research, you are also who on a personal level fundamentally understands and practices and has practice that would you be willing to share with us some of your backstory and some of your personal experience with forgiveness? Sure. I started studying forgiveness back in the 1980s, and that came through the counseling that I did. I was in a part-time practice with couple counseling, and I supervised a doctoral students. And I developed this couple treatment And, and I had taught it to one of my doctoral students and the couple that he was seeing and I was supervising him, the couple was not getting any better. And I said, yeah, you know, what's wrong? Why aren't they getting any better? And he goes, I don't know. We taught them all about communication and the conflict resolution and the intimacy stuff. They just kind of hate each other. They've got all these grudges. And I said, Don, then we need to make up an intervention to help them forgive each other. It's the 1980s, and it wasn't really things that were thought to be religious at all. We're not really that acceptable in academics at that time. I remember Don's eyes getting real big and him saying, can we do that in a secular university? Yeah, sure. I'm the supervisor. We won't tell anybody. But anyway, we started this little intervention, and I taught it to a bunch of counselors in the agency that I was clinical supervisor for, and it worked well. And we ended up writing a paper about how to help couples forgive. And one of my doctoral students, Mike McCullough, fantastic super scientist that was a beginning doctoral student then, decided he wanted to study this scientifically. I didn't know anything about the science of forgiveness. I just practicing it in counseling. And so he would come and he would bring these obscure articles that he had found in the library covered with dust. And he would bring them to me and he would talk about what they were meaning. And then I would sit there and try to look very professorial and stroke my beard at the proper time. I didn't understand what he was talking about, but that's okay. I would then go over to the library, dig the article out, try to keep up with my graduate students. So what ends up happening is we study this for about seven years. And then suddenly this academic and clinical interest of mine and the personal interest in terms of my religious experience all got put to the test because on a New Year's Eve night, my mother was murdered. She was asleep. Um, she did not drive. My father had died five or six years earlier. And so she had gone to bed early on this New Year's Eve night. And someone must have looked at her house that was darkened and no car there and thought, oh, whoever's in this house must be at a New Year's party. And a youth decided to break in, rob or burglarize the place. But she was asleep. And so she was waked up in the midst of his ransacking the place, and he ended up bludgeoning her to death. When that 
happened. And I was notified the next morning by my brother who had found her body, which ended up causing a lot of problems for him down the road about 10 years later. But but he said, you've got to come down to Knoxville, Tennessee. I live in Richmond, Virginia. So he says, mom's been murdered. And my I and my sister, who also happens to live in Richmond, drove down real quickly and got kind of caught up in that murder investigation. And at the end of the day, we had pieced together that this, the police thought that this was a, a, a youth or more than one youth who had decided to burglarize this house and had been interrupted and had used the crowbar that he had used to break the window to unlatch the door to, to hit her three times. And the third probably being the damage that caused her death. I was really angry as were my brother and sister. And that night as we, about 11 or 11.30, as we sat in Mike's back room and talked about what we had learned over the day, I remember getting so angry. I pointed to a baseball bat against the wall and said, I wish whoever did that were here, I would take that bat. And my brother and sister were both on board with the same sentiment. That night, after we finished talking, we went up to places we were spending the night and staying with my aunt and and I couldn't sleep. I just kind of raged around the bedroom until three o'clock in the morning and just uh, being really angry. About three o'clock, I was like, this is silly. I'm just not doing anything. I'm just playing this over and over in my mind. And so I sat down on the bed with the intent to write a eulogy for my mom because I'm the, I was the oldest child. And, uh, and as I sat and thought about what this woman who probably had never been more than a hundred miles away from her home, raised in East Tennessee coal mining country, she was in the nursing corps in the army, but other than that, then never really gotten away from home. And I thought, what is her life? What has she done? And she has raised three kids and she's taught us values. I wanted to practice one of the values that she had really emphasized for us, which was to forgive. And I realized I had been almost 24 hours since I'd been notified of her death. And I had never allowed myself to even think the word forgiveness. We had developed this reach forgiveness model. And so I sat there and tried to think my way through that model to try to imagine what was what had happened and imagine what it would have been like from the young man's point of view out there in the cold on New Year's Eve night in Tennessee, thinking he's going to have a perfect crime and yet suddenly getting interrupted by this old woman who's looking at him who's spoiling his perfect crime, so he's probably angry, who's looking at his face, is probably afraid that he's going to go to jail. And so as I thought through this, I could just kind of see how he would, person with just poor impulse control, how he would take that crowbar that he was holding and lash out at this source of anger and, and fear. Of course, that doesn't make it at all. It's still totally wrong, but I could understand where he was coming from. Moment, I like flashed back to earlier that night 
I had been in the back room with Mike and I had pointed that baseball bat and said, I wish whoever did that were here. I would take that bat and not in the spur of the moment, but I've been thinking about this and I would hit him in the head until he died. And of course, immediately it came to me. So who's who's sin is worse here. Who did the worst thing? And I thought, here I am, a professor who has written about, who's studied forgiveness, who's helped others forgive, a Christian who's practiced forgiveness, yet I'm willing to point to a baseball bat and say, if he were here, I would hit him in the head repeatedly until he died. I thought, my heart is darker than his heart. And yet I knew I could be forgiven. And I thought, if I can be forgiven for that, then who am I to hold unforgiveness against that young man? And I was able to make a decision to forgive at that point, I already having had an emotional change toward him and to be really set free in both senses of the word. I, I know that when I talk about this, which I have on occasion, people are like, how could you forgive something like that in 24 hours? And I'm quick to say, listen, it is not because I am super forgiver. I had a professor who gave me a B in graduate school, and it took 10 years to forgive that guy. So I'm not like, oh, yeah, I just forgive it. But no, it was, I think, an amazing experience of grace, just a gift that I was able in that shorter period of time. So that is totally not what I would anticipate very many people would experience. Mostly, we really work hard for emotional forgiveness, and, and it doesn't come within 24 hours. Now, Professor Worthington, thank you so much for sharing your personal story and history with forgiveness. My heart goes out to you and your family, and uh, you are just such a beautiful testimony to what your mother taught you about forgiveness and to being tested in such a way or form in your life with your life's work and then walking through it, walking through the darkness into the light. I think what you just shared will be so helpful to so many people. I think that one thing that really comforts me is that independently, my sister and my brother and I all came up with being able to forgive within about a month of this. And all of us had the same exact reasoning. And that was, that's what mama taught us to do. It would be dishonoring of her if we didn't follow what she had spent her life teaching us. That, that was a comfort that we all arrived at that from a different, in a different road, we arrived at the same point. What an amazing and beautiful spirit your mama is. Yeah. Yes, that is absolutely formidable. I think something that's really important to acknowledge and maybe talk about is also the difference between forgiveness and acceptance. Can you share your thoughts with us about this? Sure. I think one of the things that we've learned as we've studied forgiveness scientifically is, and I'll take a kind of a roundabout way of doing this, but people have a real kind of a, an inward justice thermometer, if you will. So when we have experienced an injustice, 
we calculate that as this is my injustice down. This is the difference from the way I'd like to see this resolved. And people have a lot of really good ways that they can reduce the size of that injustice down. So forgiveness turns out to be a choice of many, among many ways that people can get lower that sense of injustice. So one of the ways is they might see justice done. They might see a criminal caught and punished. So as just filters into that system, the sense of injustice, says they might turn it over to God, thinking God's going to sap them. This is a kind of a calling on divine justice, or maybe they just relinquish it to God, or maybe they decide that they're just going to tolerate it. They're just going to put up with it. I'm not going to respond. It's just not worth dealing with. Tolerating things stops us from responding in our behavior, but it's usually aiding to have to tolerate something. So internally, we still wrestle with this. Some people can also forbear. So forbearance is a more collectivistic notion that says, I'm not going to respond to this for the good of the group. And because there's a good reason for not doing it, it doesn't have that edge that tolerance has. Forbearance is a way, but also acceptance is a way. And it's what you ask about is what is the difference between accepting and, and forgiving. And I think acceptance is where there's more of a peace, maybe as much of a peace as with forbearing, because I'm just going to put this aside and be calm and be centered in myself and let this roll over me. Right. So, so I think that acceptance is good. It's good for people's mental health. But the difference is forgiveness, getting rid of the negative. It's also a positive push toward the person. So it's replacing those negative, unforgiving emotions with positive, other-oriented emotions. And what I didn't say when I was mentioning that definition is that if this is a stranger, when I replace negative emotions with more positive emotions, it's like a chemical titration where I'm adding a base to this acid in my stomach, and it gets less and less acidic until it gets to neutrality. Now, if this is a stranger or this is someone I don't care if I ever relate to in, in my life, I'm pretty good with, yeah, neutrality is good. I'm done with this, and I don't have to think about it anymore. And so I stop adding positive. But if this is a person that I have a valued relationship with, and I want to restore that, I keep adding positive until I, I try to get back into a net positive emotional state with that person. And I, th I think that's where forgiveness might go beyond acceptance, because acceptance is like, I can accept that this happened, but it doesn't give you that positive side of things. Now, all of those are great ways of re re filling up that injustice gap. And I think it's fruitless to compare and say, which one's better? What we encourage people to do is to use whichever ones work for you. 
and mix and match until you can take care of the problem the way that you want to. If you want to stop in neutrality, fine. If you want to keep adding more positives, then use something that adds positives. And that's the way that I see that whole relationship between my sense of justice and, and, and forgiveness and also with alternatives I have for dealing with it. And you know, acceptance is a very good way of dealing with it. And if acceptance won't take me all the way to the calm that I want, I may want to forgive or I may want to give some of this over to God or I may want to rely on some sense of trying to bring about justice. And you mentioned that you're Christian, you're a man of faith. How do you think that this may have informed your practice of forgiveness differently from someone who would not consider themselves religious? And are there any tools you could share with someone who does not have a faith that they can hold on to on how to learn and how to deepen their practice of forgiveness? Well, certainly that REACH forgiveness model, we have now, not we have done, but there are now 29 published randomized control trials investigating the effectiveness. Of that, only five of them have any religious sense at all. All of the others are secular. So that is a method that works whomever wants to apply it. In fact, we have just finished a giant trial, a randomized control trial, That unfortunately, because of embargoes, I can't tell you the results of this. But I, but let me say that it is a trial that enrolled over 4,400 participants. I don't know if that sounds like very much, but all of the research ever done on forgiveness interventions added together up through 2020 had less than 4,400 participants. So we have more than doubled the amount of people who've been studied in a forgiveness intervention. It has been done in Hong Kong, one site, over 600 people. Indonesia, two sites in the Ukraine. Colombia, 60 years of civil war that ended really in 2016. And South Africa. It was done in places that have these histories of giant hurts and conflicts and abuses. And yet, let me just say that we're happy with the results. I can't tell you how happy I am and use numbers and things like that, but we're happy with the results. All of those were secular applications. I think out of all of those sites, really only one was involved church people in at any rate. I think for people who are not religious in themselves, that reach forgiveness model works. It's not the only model out there. Bob Enright has a great model called process model of forgiveness. It's been investigated, except for this giant trial, up until then it had been investigated exactly the same amount as our reach forgiveness model and the results were the same. There are different approaches. There's even a one that has been investigated far less, but still a substantial number of times, one out of Stanford with Fred Luskin at Stanford, and his is called Forgive for Good. All of these are effective, and they've all been done with mostly, almost always, secular people instead of people who are, go through a religiously accommodated type treatment. 
Fantastic. Thank you for clarifying and for sharing this. I would like to know during the decades of your research, what were some of the most astounding things that you learned about forgiveness? Kind of are seeing a lot of that in the, the theory that I've presented. That is that there is this injustice gap that people automatically go to and that all kinds of things can be done to change the size of that gap. So when a person apologizes, that we know is hard, that reduces the amount of injustice that I have to take care of from now, from then on. If they admit responsibility, if they try to make amends, all of those things increase or decrease the size of the injustice gap. And if they refuse to do those, that actually makes it harder and makes the gap grow. But I think some of the things that we were really happy to discover that I don't think people had thought of before were that injustice gap in the relation of that to the ease of forgiveness. The other is that there are really two types of forgiveness, the decision and the emotion. And they don't have to come in either order. They can come whichever direction. I think another thing that we found that was, I think, very important is that, and I wish I didn't have to tell people this, but it doesn't matter whose program you use, they will work. All the ones that have been scientifically vetted work and they work equally well. It's like there's no program that people can just hear it and go, oh, I'm done with that. I, I totally forgive everything that's been done to me. Nope. It's all about time. And there is a linear relationship between the amount of time that I spend trying to forgive specific events and the amount of forgiveness I'll actually feel. Now, here is more good news. All of these interventions just deal with forgiveness. They don't really say anything about depression, anxiety, hope. They just, let me help you forgive if you want to forgive. But what has been found is there is going to be a positive effect on people's depression and a positive effect on their anxiety and an increase in hope. Without mentioning it, it just comes along and improves their mental health, even though it wasn't addressed directly within the intervention. So I think those are some of the things that are important findings that I've been amazed at as we have looked at this. And there, there are so many over the years. I think a lot of, I think the definitions that people use make a big, make a difference. Sometimes people confuse forgiveness with other things like reconciling. So if a person has a confused understanding and they think that they that I mean that if I forgive, I have to go back and be in a relationship with this person, it can cause a lot of problems. If you can imagine a woman who's being physically abused and she might misunderstand and think that if she forgives, she has to go back and live with this person who's beating her up regularly, she's going to put her life in danger. But that's not what forgiveness is. That's reconciliation. And we don't have to reconcile with people who are not going to be trustworthy. So mm -hmm. reconciliation is restoring trust in a relationship. If one person out of the two is not going, or both people are not going to be trustworthy, we're not going to reconcile. 
So, Thank you for pointing that out. That is a crucial difference. I think there, there are also ties to evolution that there, there's a reason why forgiveness is in the human makeup and is something that even people who are not religious sometimes are drawn to forgiving if they understand it correctly. And I think that's because within any primate group, there is really a sense of justice and there is a watching out to do things justly, but also watching out to patrol and punish people who violate the laws. But if you think about a primate troop and if all there was just punishing any wrongdoing, the, that troop wouldn't last very long. There were, animals would be hurt. They would be driven out. They would, for the months, there wouldn't be any troop. That's there. Mm, that's, so that's, that's an excellent point. Go ahead. Yeah. That's an excellent point. And it reminds me of a very dear friend of mine who I've known since I was a very young girl. She's from Sierra Leone, which is a country that has seen some terrible civil unrest and wars going on. And I asked her years ago, she visited frequently and she's met people from both sides and everybody's had such losses over the time and horrible things happen to them, their families, loved ones. And I asked her years ago, how did this actually stop this vicious cycle of retribution? And she said she just had the sense of that people just realized that if they don't stop, if they don't forgive, this is never going to end. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the other thing that is happening within people besides that desire to patrol for justice. It, there must be some kind of mechanism that helps people or primates even reconcile their differences. It works out that the, even chimpanzees and bonobos and all kinds of great apes have a similar reconciliation ritual, which is that the lower status member who's offended the upper status member approaches very tentatively, making submissive type gestures and holds out its hand to the other. And the other then may chase it off, but if it's ready to reconcile, it feels compelled to turn its back and present its back for grooming and let the other one groom it and allow the social contact. <clears throat> and that social contact helps restore the relationship there. So those two are always in competition with each other. Am I going to, am I going to swing toward justice more and punishment and anger and revenge or pursuing social means of punishment? Or am I going to forgive, which doesn't mean that the person has let off their hook societally. I forgave the young man who killed my mom, but if he gets caught, he has to face the justice system. My forgiveness did not undo justice in any way, but it undid justice in that I don't feel a need to chase him down and harm him. So it undid justice for me personally, but not, not for the system. Right. Yes. Thank you for emphasizing that, Professor Worthington. So we talked a lot about forgiving others, something that many people struggle with is forgiving self. How can I forgive 
myself, if I struggle with self-condemnation, if I don't have any self-compassion. Yeah, I think I've always thought, and if somebody's asked me directly, I've always said, you can't really tell which is harder. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I think it's harder to forgive yourself than it is to forgive other people. But And there are a couple of reasons that make it difficult. One is I'm playing two roles at the same time, both the person who was a wrongdoer and the person who's forgiving. And so that there's a little more mental gymnastics that's involved in that. I know that personally, I've had to struggle with self-forgiveness. And, and that I mentioned a little earlier that my brother finding my mother's body kind of came back at him later. So what happened is about 10 years after that, Mike was still having post-traumatic stress symptoms. He had never mentioned that, but uh, we went out to dinner one night. I was down at Knoxville on a conference and went out to dinner with Mike and we had a great adult conversation. And in the course of that, he said, I, I still have these times when this just intrudes on my life. I can't get it out of my mind. And I sometimes I get so depressed. I go in my room and I sit in the dark and for 12 hours on a Saturday and just feel terrible and depressed about this. I said, Mike, sounds like you're experiencing some post-traumatic stress problems. I think you might want to consider getting counseling. Mike didn't have much confidence in counselors. And so he goes, I'm not going to any shrink. So this is what he says to his shrink brother, which probably tells you a little something about our relationship growing up. I was the older brother. He was the younger brother. He doesn't want to take much advice from me. But at any rate, I persisted. I said, Mike, if you've been wrestling with this for 10 years and it hasn't got any better, you might want to try something different. And he goes, I'm not going to any blankety blank shrink and I don't want to hear any more about it. And uh, so I, being the mature professional that I am, the clinical psychologist who's dealt with resistance, did I use that knowledge at all? No, not at all. I responded like a hormone crazed 16-year-old who's been challenged by his older, his younger brother. And I didn't bring it up again. And within three months, Mike committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And so then <clears throat> I had a lot of self-recrimination and self-condemnation with the knowledge that I clearly acted like a juvenile and did not use things that for 40 years I had done professionally. And so I had a struggle with self-forgiveness, whereas the forgiving the young man, as I said, is an unusual happening. But I had much less struggle with that than forgiving myself for the failures with Mike. I happened to be doing a scholarly leave at the University of Cambridge at the time. And I spent most of that time developing a way to help people forgive themselves if they wanted to be able to forgive themselves. The problem with that, I could make up this great intervention, but there was just one step. I just couldn't get past myself. So here I had this great I can help you. Unfortunately, I'm still struggling with one of the steps myself. And, and that step was really making amends in some way for the wrong and the fallout from the wrong that I had done. 
I just I couldn't come up with how can I do anything to make amends? I can't see it. He might's dead. I can't do anything to make that up with him. Well, as it turned out, about three months after well, I finished that, I finished that time at Cambridge and came back to the U.S. And uh, I went to visit Mike's widow, my, my wife and I did, and uh, to see if we could do anything. And she says, there was a suicide note and it was addressed to you. And the police never would let me see it because he left this suicide note to you. He says, but the police still have it out at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and you could probably get it. And so I got that note. And, and when I read it with fear and trembling, what it was going to say, whether it was going to be condemning of me or what, but what it said was, it says, this is going to be chaotic. And I don't think my wife will be able to want to think about our finances and I've left our finances in quite a mess. And so I wonder if you would straighten out our finances for us. Suddenly he gave me something that I could do that would eat the little loop and allow me to finish up my forgiving myself because I could invest in, in helping his widow and her son by working with the finances. Beautiful. And again, thank you for sharing out of your personal story. The thing about forgiveness, and I, this is such an enlightening conversation for me, forgiving others, forgiving ourselves. There's one other important step that many people, it might be hard for them to take, is how do we ask for forgiveness? If we have been the wrongdoer, and we know that we've hurt someone, then it's important to, to make a good confession. So the way that we help people with this in couple counseling is I have this acrostic or acronym called CONFESS. And this, each letter stands for a step in this. And so we teach couples how to do this. And so C is confess without excuse. So I did wrong. I was, I did, it was wrong. That'd be specific. I don't know. I'll take a very trivial example. I forgot to get my wife a Valentine's Day card, horror of horrors, and I'm worried about this. So I just completely forgot to get you that card. C, confess without excuse. O, offer an apology. Doesn't really matter what I say. What matters is that this is perceived as coming from my heart. I was so sorry. I feel terrible. I threw up three times today. I felt so bad. Whatever happened, I have to be honest and straightforward and persuasive. C-O-N, note the other person's pain. See that I have caused you pain because you may not feel that I value you anymore because I didn't take the time to do this. Okay, I had to struggle to get a good, what is F, but I, I call it forever value the other person. That is, I have to say, I value our relationship and I value you 
much more than I value my ego holding on to this. I don't want to be defensive about this. I want to straightforward admit that I have been wrong. Confess without excuse, offer an apology, know the other person's pain, forever value. E, equalize. Can I do anything to make up for this? Of course, she may say, yes, you can tattoo on your forehead. Don't ever forget Valentine's Day again. So I'm kind of stuck with it once I offer to do something to make up for this. C-O-N-F-E-S, say never again. That is, I'm going to try never to forget an important moment in our life again. And then S, seek forgiveness. Can you forgive me? So this is a, a kind of a template of a process that you don't have to go through with a checklist, but that kind of tells people what the things that they want to get across are. A sincere from the heart, regret and remorse, a, an understanding that I've hurt the other person, a real effort to apologize and to, to offer to make restitution to the degree that I can, an intent that I'm never going to, I'm going to try never to do this again, and then a sincere request for forgiveness. The problem with all that is if I plan this out and thought about it, and I spring this on my wife, the natural tendency is for people to think that the other person should say, oh, of course I forgive. But if I've been thinking about this for a while and she hasn't, that's not really very logical that's going to happen. So with couples, we have to make sure that they know that just because you make the world's outstanding confession and request for, for forgiveness does not mean your partner has to grant forgiveness right now. So good point. You got to give them time to process this. Mm. And um, people have different attitudes toward this. Some people want to see you grovel and some people want to see you suffer. And, and other people are like, yeah, I forgive you. Of course I did. It's individual right there. That's, so there's a whole process around how we communicate about. And from your perspective, are there things that are unforgivable? Yeah, I think there's nothing that in principle is unforgivable. I say that with a knowledge that different religions take different points of view on that. Like Judaism in particular thinks that there are unforgivable sins that because if you murder someone, that person can never be approached and grant forgiveness. But I think in principle, there's nothing that's unforgivable. Now, notice I've said two or three times in principle, because in practice, there's that injustice gap. And that injustice gap can be so big that I'm probably never going to get over it and close it up emotional, especially if it's an ongoing hurt. That's again, again, my boss is on me daily, five times a day, always criticizing me. I might be able to forgive, to make a decision, to keep treating the person as a valued and valuable person. I'm never going to have emotional, total emotional forgiveness for this. It just isn't going to happen because 
the emotional wall is too high to, to in practice scale. Of course, there's also events and that are, and people suffer from things, attacks that are so vicious and so horrendous that forgiveness is truly an absolutely personal thing. It can always only come from the inside. It can never be imposed on someone. And well, that's why... My life mission is to do all I can to promote forgiveness in every willing yeah. heart, home, and homeland. And yeah. people do have to be willing. But again, as I mentioned earlier, forgiveness doesn't have to do all of the heavy lifting because there's turning it over to God. There's seeing justice maybe come out of this. There's tolerating, forbearing, accepting. All of those can help narrow down that injustice gap to some degree, and maybe someday the person might be willing to transcend that with forgiveness. Yeah. But that's not a given. I would like to know from you, Professor Worthington, of course, forgiveness is one of the core practices of your life, and it's such a profound one, and you've shared so richly and wisely and authentically with us here, which I'm very grateful for. Are there any other practices that have had a profound impact on your life that you could share with us? The reason I laugh is because I would say trying to be humble. Laugh because of how many times I do not succeed at that. So it is a practice of trying to be humble. And it is very trying to me at times because I, uh, I can't seem to do that consistently. But I think that's really, Augusta named that as the key to virtue of all kinds. And I think they're like these core virtues that are the bedrock on which all other virtues rest. And one of those is humility. One of them is self-control. And one of them is wisdom. And, and I think the other virtues flow as different combinations of those. And of course, those are sometimes at odds with each other. So my self-control doesn't always work hand in hand with my humility. And, uh, and I may jump to conclusions and not be very wise in some of the decisions that I make. And so those three are a constant tension, but they are, I think, the kind of the three table on which the others grow out of. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Professor Worthington. Just from my perspective and the small glimpse I get into your person, I think you are very successful at practicing humility. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, and your mission. Thank you for being a guest on my podcast today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed the conversation. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.